So in most of my emails, I start off the email by saying, what's up, family? And since we are family, I want to confess some things to you. I am terrible with names. Like, I'm really bad with names. My favorite events at Renaissance are the ones that have name tags, um, <laughs> mainly because it's one thing when you just meet someone, you met them the first time last week, it's okay. But there are people who have been around since launch service, and I'm like, ah, I've asked them their name 64 times, and I've already I've forgotten over again. Or sometimes I'll be like uh, scouring people's social media, like, what is their name again? Um, and the reason, I say that for two reasons. One, as a confession, when you see me in the hallway, please remind me your name. Two, um, it's important because, like, unless you know someone's name, you could never really have a relationship with them. Like, the name is like the foundation level of the beginning of a relationship. If you were to tell me that you met someone new and you were like excited about this person, like the first thing that people ask you is like, what's their, what's their name? Mainly so people can go and search them on social media and start to uh, stalk them, cyber stalk them. But we also know that the beginning of a relationship with anybody is their name. Now, for thousands of years, people have known this to be very true. There's a man named Moses who was the leader of the children of Israel, and Moses uh, encounters God. And when he encounters God, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and God tells Moses that you are going to go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world, and you are going to tell Pharaoh that the children of Israel, which had been in slavery, uh, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, that you were going to release them. Moses says, God heard you. However, when I get to Pharaoh, who should I tell him sent me? What's your name? God tells Moses, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. And one of the most profound scriptures in the Bible, God says that his name is I am. I heard a preacher once say that God calls himself I am because God is whatever you need him to be whenever you need him to be it. And Jesus, when you get to the New Testament, does something that is either true or it is the most narcissistic thing imaginable. Jesus takes this statement from God that God is the I am, and Jesus attaches it to himself. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus records the statement where he says these words, ego am I, which means I am. And Jesus tells us who he is, and he um, in so many different ways, seven times, he gives, gives us a description of what he is. And there's seven different I am statements in the book of John that we're going to go through for the next seven weeks. And these are really profound um, statements. And this is really important because of this. If we were to pass a microphone around the room today and ask you who Jesus is, we would all probably have a different version of who we think Jesus is. For the next seven weeks, we are suspending our judgment of who we think Jesus is, of who our fears tell us Jesus is, of what culture or our friends tell us Jesus is, and we are allowing Jesus to reintroduce himself to us personally. So these seven statements, we're going to let Jesus tell us who he is, and then we are going to keep Jesus at the center of it all and allow him to um, tell us what it means to be in real relationship with him. So the first statement that Jesus says is that Jesus is the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, this statement is immensely profound, and we find it in the book of John in the sixth chapter. And the sixth chapter is about 70 verses. And uh, for the sake of time today, I'm going to read uh, them in smaller chunks. We're not going to get through the whole chapter, but I'm just going to catch everybody up. We're going to start in verse 26. And Jesus just got finished feeding a bunch of people. 
And now he's starting to interact with the crowd. And here's what he says in verse 26. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so Jesus, from his own words, tells us and tells the crowd and tells his disciples what it means to be in relationship with him, what it means to know him, what he is like, what he will be in your life. You know, I was talking to a friend um, a couple weeks ago, and they were saying one of the bigger challenges in being a pastor is so many people are disappointed by the promises that God never made. And we hold God up to standard sometimes that he never held up for himself. So we're going to allow Jesus to set the standard of who he is um, for us. And the first thing it means for Jesus to be the bread of life, it means that Jesus did not come just to give us bread, but to be bread. When Jesus said that he's the bread of life, it means this. It means a number of things. But first it means that Jesus did not come mainly to give bread, but to be bread. So let me give you a little bit of a context. So... This comes starting in verse 26, where Jesus is talking about what it means to, to follow him. And Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. So there was this crowd, and Jesus does the miraculous. He calls his disciples to follow him, and they said, Jesus, there's no way that all these people are going to have enough bread. Jesus says, what do you have? And they said, we have five pieces of bread and two fish. Jesus says, all right, have everybody sit down and tell them the food is on the way. Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 uh, through this five pieces of bread and two fish. And now, the next day, the entire crowd is coming to Jesus. Now, quick, conf- quick confession. Preachers love crowds. This whole large crowd comes, and they're searching for Jesus. And Jesus' first interaction with them is not joy, but rebuke. He says, you're not here for me. You are here for what I did for you yesterday. Jesus did not come primarily to give bread, but to be bread. Here's what it says in verse 26. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Check this out, y'all. One of the great temptations that all of us have is that we will treat God, you will treat Jesus as a means to an end and not the end himself. And Jesus will only be satisfying The bread of life will only be satisfying if you treat him as the end and not a means to an end. Now, there is a little tension in this because Jesus does want you to ask him for things. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, in the message that Aswan preached last week in Luke 10, Jesus includes a line that says, give us today our daily bread. God wants you to come to him for your needs and your wants. God gives you desires in your heart. And God wants you to pray to him for them. One of the biggest challenges is we can treat Jesus as a resource and not the source. We can treat Jesus as a means to get the things that we want. And if he doesn't do those things, 
we will not follow him. What you see later on in this scripture is that many people, many of Jesus' disciples left him. In verse 66, we'll get to this a little bit more later. They left following Jesus for the same reason that you and I attempted to walk away. Because Jesus didn't give them what they want when they wanted. The great temptation that we all have is to treat God as a means to an end and not an end itself. Over the number of years, I have, as I've been a pastor, I can probably think of very few things that have caused people the most anguish and the most discouragement in their faith journey with Jesus as unanswered prayers. And I certainly have had my fair share of prayers, of of prayers that have gone unanswered. And to be perfectly honest, in those moments when I have prayed to God, forgot to do something, I have wrestled saying, God, I know you're powerful. You can do this thing. And for whatever reason, you have chosen to not do it or to not do it yet. Now, the challenge is not that that's difficult because that's going to be difficult no matter what. The challenge is when I start to feel my heart drift away from God because he has not done the thing for me that I have wanted him to do. At those moments, it is an invitation for us to reevaluate whether or not we are treating Jesus as the bread or we are treating Jesus as a means to an end. And Jesus is only satisfying. He tells us he, he is the bread of life because he wants to be, uh, be bread, not primarily to, to give bread. Now, as one said this last week in his message, that like, it's impossible to have a close, intimate relationship with someone where the relationship is transactional. Nobody has a close relationship with Chase Bank. <laughs> I don't care how good they've treated you over the years. I don't care how many tellers are there when you show up to do your transactions. It's a transactional relationship. If another bank is more convenient, you'll switch to them. For so many of us, one of the reasons we struggle with intimacy with God is because the nature of our relationship is transactional. It's not personal. Jesus wants to be bread that we take in, that his life becomes our life. And it's a warning to not treat him as a means to an end, but rather to see him as the end itself. Now, for me, one of the things I do when I start to notice my heart drifting away, I do two things. I, I pray. I say, God, I, am, I know I'm treating you like a means to an end because I'm just so mad that you didn't do the thing that I wanted you to do. And it's also an invitation to change your focus a little bit and to allow God to let, you, let him be God in your life. And here's why this is so important in your life. The scripture says, as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how high much higher God's thoughts are from your thoughts and God's ways are from your ways. God's ways and his thoughts are so much higher than yours. And one of my friends who used to be a pastor in Atlanta said this. He said, when it comes to faith, you make a much better historian than you do a detective. A historian searches the records of what has happened and then they present a report based on all the things that have happened. A detective tries to determine motives and figure out who done it and who's, uh, who's done what and why. And for so many of us, our, 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 the nature of our faith is we're detectives. We're trying to figure out why God is doing what God is doing. And we would make much better historians to look back on the cross, to look back on what God has done for us as evidence of his love for us in the future. So number one, Jesus was, did not come into the world to be bread, to give bread, but to, to be bread. Number two, uh, what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life is that Jesus is different from other breads. Jesus is different from other breads. He says, I am the bread of life. 
And in a world full of other breads that you can choose, Jesus says, I am different. Um, In verse 27, Jesus says this, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So Jesus contrasts a number of different breads here in verse 27. He said that there is food that perishes, food that goes stale. Back in the Old Testament where God provided manna for the children of Israel, they were only allowed to take manna for one day because after that it would go bad. They were not able to store it up. What Jesus is basically saying is there are things in your life that might look promising. They might look like they'll fill you up. But eventually they will go bad and you're going to need to keep on going to that source over and over and over again. But he is the source that is eternal. He is a source that is infinite. You know, over about 50 years ago, uh, there was one of the worst famines that this world has really truly known in modern history. And estimated, um, I think, over a million people died Um, in China in one of these famines in the 1940s. And one of the things that people did in this famine, which was something that at the time made so much sense, but later historians realized was one of the causes of so much death was people were hungry and they realized that they could make this dough out of clay. There was this white clay that they can add water to and they can knead it like dough and they could bake it and they could eat it and their stomachs would feel full. The problem with this clay was that there was absolutely zero nutrients in it. No carbs, no vitamins, no proteins, no nothing. And these people died even sometimes quicker than other people because they were eating something that promised them life but did not have real nutrients. Jesus, when he calls himself the bread of life, is basically saying this, I am the one that has nutrients. There are other things around you that look promising, You've eaten them before, and if you eat a little bit of it, it will feel like it's filling your stomach, but it has no nutrients. What are some of those things that we can feast on as false breads in our life? For me, my first one that I usually go to is image. It's a good thing to have a good image. It's a good thing for people to speak well of you. It's a terrible thing for you to live for the purpose of other people speaking well of you. Our identity might be one of the biggest idols worshipped today. We can run the temptation of abandoning who we are and what God calls us to do in Christ, and we place our identity in other things. Social media following, positions at work, skills, achievements. We have our uh, identity and image wrapped up in the wrong things. Our kids and how many kids we have and how well they do and how many languages they speak. Our career success, our clothes, Whatever it is, it is a form of prison. Here's why it's a form of prison, because if, you, if your image is the thing that you are going to daily to feel full, then every single day you're going to be in the court, courtroom of other people's opinions, needing them to validate you one more day. And you're going to have to do that every single day for the rest of your life. That is a bread that, even if you get a little bit of it, it might feel filling for the day, but it has no nutrients. For some of us, it's not our image, it's money. And money has promised you security and significance. And you're daydreaming about if you were to have this raise or if you were to have this job, then you would finally feel significant and secure. The problem with money is something that we've all felt before. When you make a little bit of money, you immediately become dissatisfied with it. And the only thing that your appetite knows is more. I remember being in high school 
and I was like, yo, when I get a job and I'm making like five figures, I'm going to be balling. In my brain, like $10,000, if you would have offered me $10,000 a year in high school, I would have been like, done, deal, take it. And I would have thought that that was enough. And clearly that's, you know, we all know what these rents are like these days. And every single moment in my life when I've made more money, I've spent more money and, I, and I've started to feel more insignificant about the amount that I, that I had. The only thing that our appetite knows about money is, is more. It might promise you that it's going to fill you up, but every single day, you take another bite and it doesn't. More than that, I know so many people who make a, a, a lot of money, re like real, real bread, people who make real large sums of money. I've never met anybody, regardless of their social income, I mean, their, their, their income bracket, in which money by itself was filling for them. It's always empty. It's empty calories. It's a good thing. Don't hear me saying that it's a bad thing. It can be a very good thing in your life if you steward it well. But for so many people, it's the thing that we turn to, and it's empty. For others of us, it's our physical appearance, and for many of us, it's, it's comfort and it's pleasure. One of the most biggest paradoxes about comfort is that uh, you might find yourself in a difficult season of life, and for whatever reason, um, there are some things that God gives us the grace to endure some of the challenges of life. But for so many of us, following Jesus is difficult, not because of a death in a family or something that is really truly saddening, but because we think that God owes us, or we think that the life that God wants for us is the most comfortable one. So when it comes to where you will live, where you will work, what you will do, how you will serve, we choose comfort. We choose the thing that is the most comfortable for us. Here's the challenge with that. Jesus promises that his followers will face trials, persecution, and difficulty. And while comfort is not a bad thing, it is damaging when it becomes the main pursuit of your life because all the comfort in the world are just empty calories. So number one, Jesus did not come to give bread, but to be bread. Number two, Jesus is the bread of life, and he distinguishes himself from false breads. And the third thing it means for Jesus um, to be the bread of life, he's telling us that he has to be consumed. He wants to be consumed. One of the first things I do when I sit down at, the rest, at any restaurant is I start to look at who got there after I did. Because if anybody gets their food before I got my food, <laughs> I'm going to be tight. Because I hate watching food go past me when I'm hungry. Food is only satisfying if you eat it, if you consume it. You could be surrounded by it, and unless you bring it into your person, it's of no value to you. A number of years, there was this thing called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, uh, run by a man named Dr. Ansel on the, in 1944 and the University of Minnesota. Now, this is when world wars were going on, and doctors really didn't have a good understanding of hunger, severe hunger, and malnutrition, and what it does to a person. So they asked for volunteers who would come in to be a part of this experiment so that this, under, this research and this literature would help serve in war-torn countries, in famine-torn countries, about what is the best way for someone to be brought back to life and re-nourished after they've gone through prolonged periods of starvation. So these 36 men took up residence and they enrolled in this starvation experiment. And they would walk around town in khakis and a white shirt, and they would like frequent all the diners, and they'd be sitting in the diners drinking black coffee and watching other people eat. 
It's like this weird thing. They'd be like, you'd be sitting there eating blueberry pancakes, and it'd be this group of men who are extremely emaciated and very unhealthy looking, and they're staring at you eat. Because in some ways, the doctor noticed that they were going through a form of psychosis where the closest that they, they felt like being closer to food and looking at it would be of some benefit to them. Food is of no benefit to you unless you consume it. When Jesus calls himself the bread of life, he's saying, you have to take his life into your life. Now, one of the bigger challenges for people is that they have turned Jesus into a detached theological concept that they evaluate from a distance. It don't work like that. The only way that you will be able to determine if God is good is if you take his life into your life and you try it. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, listen to this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does what? And acts on them, puts them into practice in their life. They will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them, they hear the words, they say, oh, that's interesting. It will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Here's what Jesus is saying in this text and what he says also parenthetically in John 6. Jesus wants you to actually build your life on his words. He wants you to believe in him in such a way that you take his life into your life. And the only way you will be able to determine the goodness of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, whether or not following Jesus truly makes sense is by building your life, is by acting on it. One of the things that I've reasoned, I've learned over my life is that uh, you can, in any scenario, whether it's following Jesus, should you marry a person, should you go to the city, is this. You can reason your way to probability, but you have to commit your way to certainty. There's a certain number of data that you can gather from the outset that says this is probably a good idea. The only way you will ever have certainty in life is if you commit to something. If you're a person who hires people at your job, you can read a resume, call the references, do the background checks, all the things, and you can have a sense that this is probably a good idea to hire this person. But until you hire them and put them in that role and watch them thrive or not thrive, that is when you will have the certainty of whether or not that was a good decision. When Jesus calls himself bread, he's saying he wants to be consumed. He wants you to take his words, and he wants you to put them into practice in your life. Now, here's the thing. If you follow Jesus for more than 12 minutes, you will encounter periods of your life where you have a will that goes this way, and Jesus has a will that goes in the other direction. One of the things I've seen in my life, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is every time I have to forgive someone, my will says, they're going to learn today. <laughs> Jesus says... Forgive them like you have been forgiven. And forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is difficult. Now, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I want to be consumed. Jordan, I want you to take my words in. I want you to turn away from your will, and I want you to do mine. And the only way Jesus will be satisfying, nourishing, life-giving in our life is if we actually just follow him. Not just go into endless debates and say, well, I just don't know, you know about this thing, this concept of forgiveness or whatever that means. And we will put ourselves in endless debates about what that or whatever it is to the point to where we will never actually find Jesus useful in our life. And many times we don't find him useful because we're not actually consuming him. We're not taking his life into our life. So back to John 6. 
This is the part of the sermon that really messed people up. Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Skipping down to verse 66, it says, from that moment, from that moment one of the saddest verses in the Bible, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, what is Jesus talking about? He's given some cannibalistic vibes here in, this, in John 6, but he's not talking about physically eating his body. He is talking about believing in him in such a way that you internalize his life into your life, that you take him into your life. Now, what does, what does food that you consume do to the body? It provides life. It sustains us. It nourishes us. It, it allows us to live another day. We take it in. We chew it. it we take it into our innermost being in ourself. And Jesus is saying all throughout the scripture, all throughout John 6, that what it means to consume him, to take him in, is to believe in him. And not believing in him in such a way that you can give an intellectual assent to say, oh, I believe these things. But belief in him in such a way that it changes the way you live. That you trust him more than you trust yourself. That when you find yourself on the, on the forks in the road, you choose the fork in the road that goes to where Jesus says to go as opposed to where you would want to go. So Jesus is saying this is what discipleship is in a nutshell. Discipleship is following Jesus even when he takes you in directions that you would not norm normally go in. And this is something that troubles people because we have a will. We don't want to be told what to do. I know I don't want to be told what to do. So what do we see in uh, John 6, 28? It, uh, they asked Jesus a question. They said, Jesus, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. This is your work this week, that you believe in the one that he has sent. Now, this, I want to gently challenge us this week to incorporate what it means to believe Jesus into your life, wherever you find yourself and to evaluate whether or not you are actually believing in Jesus, not just theologically, but in a way that affects your life. Now, I'm going to bring up a couple of different areas that um, might resonate with you, and I want you to think about these things um, for your week. So the first one is, believing in Jesus means that I depend on his wisdom, not my own. The problem with that is my plans and my wisdom makes a lot of sense to me. And when Jesus wants me to depart from what I am doing and what I have previously determined to do and to follow him, it is a difficulty. But believing in Jesus means depending in his wisdom and not your own. Now, there's so many people that I've talked to over the years that they have a version of Christianity that says, I will follow Jesus so long as it makes sense to me. 
and that's not going to work. Here's what it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding in all of your ways, not some of them, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Every day we remember um, we need to make the choice to say this to ourselves and maybe even repeat the scripture over our lives that I depend on God's wisdom, not my own, and to repeat this scripture from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Second one is uh, strength. I, I depend on God's strength, not my own. One of the biggest challenges with Christianity is that it is a, it is a way for the weak, not for the strong. If you are trying to maintain your independence and personal strength, Christianity will not be something that you find to be helpful or useful. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians um, 12, where a man named Paul is struggling with something in his life. It doesn't reveal to us exactly what it is, but he calls it a thorn in his flesh, something that is painful to him everywhere that he turns. Over and over again, he prays to God and asks God to remove this thorn. And God's answer to him, Jesus' answer to him is this, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. The paradox of 2 Corinthians 12 is that the more we are weak, the stronger we are. Because when we are aware of our weakness, we can actually let God be strength in our life. Now, I think practically the way this works is it means that you are not beating yourself up for not being strong, first and foremost. And secondly, it means going to God more in prayer. And as one's message last week about us having a praying life is something that we're bringing our daily needs before God and asking God to help us um, not just once a week or once a day, but many times throughout the day, inviting God to be in our lives in such a way that we are depending on his strength depending on him to help us to make it through a day or situation, or depending on him to help us to, to be people who even grow. So if that's you, um, to be saying that to yourself this week, I depend on God's strength, not my own. This next one is going to make y'all mad. Uh, God, to really believe in Jesus means that you depend on his timing. Uh, yeah, I knew that was going to get y'all messed up. For me, I might be different. In my life, I read the Bible. I see people who have gone through difficult periods of life. I am okay with suffering to an extent. But I have like a predefined period of my life of how long that should last. I'm okay with God not answering my prayers for a little bit. After a certain point, and I know this, I don't know what the point is. After a certain point, I start to notice myself not becoming discouraged or sad, but becoming angry and entitled because God hasn't answered my prayers yet. I start to look around and compare my life to other people, other people who have gotten the request that I myself have prayed for, and it makes me mad. It makes me upset. Part of that is because I'm depending on Jordan's timing, not Jesus' timing. I think that my timing is better than his timing, and as a result... I am not willing to take his life into my life and depend on him and believe in him in such a way that it would allow me to wait patiently. Here's a scripture in Proverbs where it says this. It's a declaration that you should, I want you to write this one down and I want you to read it until you believe it. 
Psalm 31, 14, it says this, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. That last part could be a, a declaration and a meditation you think about. God, my times, the timing of my life and what you do in my life is in your hands. I once heard a preacher say this, the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. If you've ever taken a situation into your own hands and made a mess out of it, you know that the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you did wait on God. I don't want y'all to do that. 2023, I don't want us taking things into our own hands. I want us to believe in Jesus in such a way that says, Jesus, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. As far as the heavens are from the earth, that's how much higher your ways and your thoughts are from mine. And Jesus, I want to trust you and your timing more than my own. And I will not take things into my own hands. Um, and I will allow you to be God. Last one is this. I depend, and this one is for everybody, I depend on God's righteousness, not my own. To believe in Jesus truly means that we are depending on his righteousness, not my own. Now, you'll know this for some of y'all who are um, new to faith, this might not apply to you, but if you've been around Jesus for a little bit, one of the challenges is your prayer life could devolve into a never-ending list of, God, I'm sorry I didn't do this. I'm sorry I didn't do this. I'm sorry I didn't do that. And you kind of feel miserable about prayer because all you're doing is apologizing for the things you didn't do. Now, to a certain extent, the Holy Spirit gives us conviction. What does that mean? Conviction is an awareness of areas of our life that we need to come on up and do better in. But in some ways, we feel so bad and there's some self-loathing because we don't trust in Jesus' righteousness to be our own. The story of the Bible means this, that God has come down and Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve. He put it on his back. And because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross, we get his righteousness and we could stand before God in peace. Here's what it says in Romans 5 and 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast, we brag in the hope of the glory of God. This is what it means to be justified by faith, that we have peace with God. We know that God is not in heaven weighing a scale of our, uh, of, of our day and how well we have done, but we can be settled because of what Christ has done. So I went to high school in New Rochelle, and when I went to high school, uh, we had beef with Mount Vernon, and they were tougher than us, so it was usually like a one-way beef. <laughs> but I remember, like, when you go to Mount Vernon, like, you just wouldn't go somewhere that people didn't know you. And when I was a freshman in college, my roommate, my best friend, was from Mount Vernon, and this is before, like, cell phones were even a thing. And I remember calling him, and he was like, yo, meet me on my block. And I was like, okay, cool, but I'm leaving. I'm leaving the house now, so you actually have to be outside to meet me. So I get to his block, and I got out the car. I'm kidding. I stayed in the car until he came. <laughs> now I get to his block, and I was, like, standing outside looking around like, yo, if they know me, like, there might be some static because I don't know anybody here. I am not good at Mount Vernon. Somebody came over and was like, yo, who are you looking for? And I was like, here's my wallet. Take it. <laughs> now I say, yo, I'm, I'm looking for Rashad. And they were like, okay, cool. He's down the block. I'm going to go get him. That night was one of the funnest nights of my life. I stood on a block that I had no business standing on till 2 o'clock in the morning, eating pizza, telling jokes, 
having a great time. And my standing, my peace was not because of me. It was because my man had the hood pass. If his name wasn't good, my name wouldn't have been good. Jesus has the hood pass. Your standing with God is not based on how well you have done, but because his name is good everywhere. His name before the Father is good. It's perfect. And you and I can have peace. Not just peace, but access to the Father because of him. And that's what it means to stand in his righteousness, not your own. So this week, if you find yourself self-loathing, it's because you're standing in your own righteousness and not his. Let me pray for us. Jesus, our good shepherd, our perfect savior, Uh, Forgive us for the times we're trying to save ourselves. Jesus, our bread of life, help us to take you into our life in such a way that frees us, that nourishes us, that satisfies us, that blesses us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.